Welcome to Best Picture This, where it is always Oscar season. I'm Mike. And I'm Brian. In this show, we reevaluate every Best Picture nominee from the 21st century and decide whether to keep it or kick it from its Oscar pedestal. And we've done a lot of kicking and we've done a lot of keeping over the past month or so, Brian. We We watched all five Best Picture nominees from 2001. And then some. And then some, yeah. The the nominees were Moulin Rouge, Gosford Park, In the Bedroom, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, and Best Picture winner, A Beautiful Mind, plus we threw in Donnie Darko and uh, Mulholland Drive along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in this show, we're going to... It's, it's our finale. So uh, it's a little bit different from other episodes. First off, we're going to reorder the Best Picture nominees that the Oscar chose, as though no other movies existed. Mm-hmm. Assuming that they are... In a different order. We're ranking the Academy's We actually picks. do rank them. Whether we have the same best picture or not, we're still going to rank them in order. And then, so we might even, you know, select the new best picture. Maybe. Um, then, in the second segment, we're going to throw out the Oscars altogether and say, what are truly the best five or your favorite five, your personal top five of the year mm-hmm. in order. Um, and then we'll look at the other, the slate of other Oscar awards and pick maybe a couple others to say, well, this this got best actor, but it shouldn't have, or something like that. It's the best episode of the year because we get to tell totally. people they are wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who doesn't love to do fun. that? Then we'll do our golden takes for the year and recap the 2001 season. And then we will ask each other one question in which we will... Put on, put the leash of truth on Gino and take him for a walk. Oh, Gino made it into the episode. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's also some trivia that I have. I have five tidbits of trivia. Okay, the trivia five. The tri- <laughs> the <laughs> trivial five. Um, so, Mike, how would you reorder the Oscars' five movies? Well, first of all, I want to say that the Academy did not get it right this year. (laughs) Not even close. In fact, of the three years we've done so far, 99, Mm -hmm. 2000, 2001, I think the best picture of 2001 is the worst of the bunch. I'm going to throw that out. Yeah, interesting. Not even in my top three. Mm-hmm. It's a little spoiler. So number five, I'm going Gosford. It's not very much of a, sp- a spoiler <laughs> if you're about to say I'm 10 seconds say later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I, I don't know. might have ruined uh, some people's day. But number five, Gosford Park. Mm-hmm. Number four, A Beautiful Mind. Number three, I'm going Moulin Rouge. Number two, I labored over this a little bit, but I'm going to go In the Bedroom. And number one, Fellowship. Interesting. I, this is my biggest question going into today is whether fellowship made number one for you yeah because i wrestled with this quite a bit and actually i i I typed out one as this is why this is the best movie and then i changed my mind as i (laughs) I do that all the time it's really interesting and the big critics you know you wonder how much they wrestle with it because those those i mean those lists that they're making in the year of those are really big deal and i i would i would guess that sometimes those critics top lists have a big sway on the oscar Oh, yeah. on the Oscar For voters sure. too. And I bet you with them they're kind of they have a different experience than than we do doing these because yeah. they're probably seeing a movie say in March, writing it down yeah. like this is this might make my top 5, mm-hmm. but by December it might have not not have stuck with them so much. Yeah, absolutely. So you're going to have, you know, some new experiences when you rewatch those and I bet you some fall away if they uh if they don't stand the which test is, of months. Which is kind of kind <laughs> of embarrassing though because how often do you see like one of the year's best and it was like 
in March. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was the best out of 10 so far. <laughs> and then by the end, it didn't make the cut, but it's still on the DVD cover. Yeah. Because it was one of the year's 10 best. Yeah, I love when it says that <laughs> and, the, and the publication under it is something that you've, you've never um, heard of. Mm-hmm. I like that. So my 2001 reordering, drumroll please, number five I had as Moulin Rouge. Okay. Although my distaste for it kind of <laughs> waned as we as we went on. I liked it more than I did at the end, although I still kick, kicked it and I'll, I'll stick by my kicking. Number four to me was A Beautiful Mind. You had it as number five, right? Number four. So we lined up okay, on that. Gosford Park was a hard number five for me. Gosford Park is yet to come for me. <laughs> In the Bedroom is number three oh, for me. Oh, wow. Which shows... Wow. How strong I think Gosford Park at number two yeah. and Lord of the Rings are. Because I think In the Bedroom is, as we talked about in the episode, its own kind of masterpiece. Yeah. And I'm so impressed with it. Um, and it's one of those things that those top three, if you told me that they had to be rearranged, I couldn't be mad about it, really. Yeah. You know? but, but it's interesting that we both had Lord of the Rings as number one. Yeah, I don't disagree with you with the... I'm not going to get into the Gosford Park. You know that yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of that. We know we disagree on that. But I'm, I'm totally with you with the yeah. idea that depending on the day, depending on my mood, I could switch in Me the too. bedroom and, and Lord of the Rings. It depends on, and, and this is a little, uh, you know, bringing in a personal message that we exchanged earlier today, but we're talking about the next movie to watch. And you're saying, I, I could do with a, a non-epic. Yeah. <laughs> There's some Change fatigue. There's there, there can be a little fatigue with these like big sweeping grand movie after grand movie um, that it, it's almost, it's like, it's not really fair to the movie. No. Um, but it also changes a little bit. Like if you have seen five movies that are great, but they're all similar. And then you watch something else that's very different. Sometimes you're going to be more impressed with it, more excited about it just because it was different. So yeah. the context matters a lot. And it's tough, too, just to try to schedule them. You know, when you know that you yeah. have almost a four-hour movie, you're like, well, <laughs> yeah. I can't really start it at 8.30. That's why you watch, one hour, early, you watch one hour installments. <laughs> oh, I can't do that. One hour installments on your phone, and you're fine with that. <laughs> no, that's a, that's the benefit of doing it on the phone, is that you can cut it down to like 10-minute installments. Wow, just, on, you know, between interviews, on your lunch break, whenever oh, you can yeah. fit it in. Ugh, that's a little disgusting. bathroom break, you know. That, that's horrible. And I don't want to talk about your bathroom breaks <laughs> anymore right. on the show. Gosser Park, though. So um, I guess I won't give my defense of why it was the best because I didn't even pick it as the best. But Lord of the Rings, you know, the ambition, huge themes, production. It's that, did that factor into you? Yeah, it did. Um, This kind of was sort of going to be my question I was going to ask you at the end. Like how much does a movie scale and ambition factor in? Because in the bedroom in Lord of the Rings, you can't get two polar opposite kinds of movies. Exactly. I mean, they they can't be any more different. One is small scale human drama and one is gigantic scale fantasy. One has a big budget. We'll, yeah, we'll one say has a which, tiny I won't comment budget. on which one is the bigger budget. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, in the bedroom, maybe, maybe that one. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that for me, it does factor in. I mean, I can't deny that sort of the bigger the ambition, the, the more credit I kind of have to give it, even if it's on a subconscious level. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I think that that does fall away if the movie doesn't work very well. Yeah. You know, it's it's not just the spectacle that that's going to carry you through to get you number one on my list. I mean, that's a coveted spot. It Brian. is. It's Mike's Mike's number one. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Um, well, I'm going to spend my question 
my question that is designed to put the leash of truth on Gino. Okay. Um, and I'll ask a different question later on, but I'm going to use my question now, please, Michael. Um, Peter Travers, <laughs> the guy. great, the great, the immortal, Rolling Stone critic. Um, he, in 2001, and I didn't go back and look at every year, but I noticed that it certainly was not, is not a normal thing. He doesn't do it every time. This year, he picked in his top movies of the year, which I look at every year. I look at, at Peter Travers and Roger Ebert to see what do they pick as their top movies of the year to inform me as I pick my list of ones I'm going to watch, hmm. which this year I watched 19 2001 movies. I was very impressed with myself. You, I mean, you I was churning the through them. Churning the question through. is, though, yeah. if you, do you make your list before you look at theirs or do you look at their list first? I, I, I look at three sources. Okay. First is I look at the Oscars and I do, obviously we're doing the best pictures, but if somebody got a best acting, like best actor or best actress nomination, yeah. then I try to find it and watch it. And I don't, mm -hmm. I don't get to all of them and not all of them are available on clear play VidAngel, but I try to get to all those. For example, I was not excited really to watch Ali. It did not make my top five. Michael Mann, you know, I kind of didn't love his style in The Insider. This was his next movie right after that. Um, but Will Smith was nominated and it yeah. was Michael Mann, you know, he's well-respected. So I thought I'm going to add that to my list and I watched it. And in part because also Peter Travers had it on his list. So how can you go wrong? Um, but I look at all three of those lists and then pick my pile of, of lists and then I get, have to give it to my wife and she has to tell me which one she wants to watch. So she doesn't get mad that I watched one that she liked without me. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's a big process. There's yeah. a lot of planning that goes into See, that's this. the one benefit of having a wife that doesn't care about movies <laughs> because I could do whatever I well, want. I don't like, need to coordinate around her, you know? It's more like she detests, she really does not want to watch certain movies. Okay. Like if it's horror at all, she doesn't want, she wants to have nothing to do with it. But if there's one that she would have watched, she's like, ah, oh, she feels left out. Um, so anyway, my going to my question of truth. Mm-hmm. Is Peter Travers cheating when in 2001, he actually gave two lists, the Hollywood 10 and the Indie 10? Or is that better? Can, they, can you really compare in the bedroom and Lord of the Rings? They're not even trying to do the same thing. I've made it clear from episode one that I think, not the Phantom Menace, episode one of this show, <laughs> that I think the whole concept of us pitting these movies against each other is ridiculous. I think, I think the concept no, no, no. in it's itself. It's brilliant. It's a great idea for a show, Mike. Remember? It, it, <laughs> it makes for fun conversation. Well, which the is Oscars the point. do it. Yeah. And they, I'm not, and I, I, I'm not defending the Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> That's not ridiculous. I mean, I, I think right. that the Oscars are ridiculous in a certain way too. Right. And a lot for this kind of reason, you know, comparing these things that are so different, you know, picking one over the other, it's like, what, what's the criteria there? And it does seem that often it leans toward the biopic, the quote-unquote important, the, yeah. the grander scale. You know, in the bedroom to win a best picture, I, 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 I'll have to look at the list and see what year did a movie that was anything close to similar as the small budget, quiet movie like in the bedroom actually win mm. best picture. I have to, I'll have to look at the list again. But Peter Travers picked The Fellowship as his number one Hollywood movie as well. So we kind of agree with okay. him there. Um, and did he go in the bedroom for Indy? No. In the bedroom was number seven. Wow. For him. Not a big fan. Well, I mean. Gosford Park was number nine on, hmm. on his Indy list. Okay. 
I don't know. I, I mean, bet I you th- want to know the rest of these movies, don't you? I You're do dying wa- to know. I do want to know his number one. Yeah. Um, but I guess my feeling on it as a whole is that, yes, it is cheating. And on the other hand, I don't care that it's yeah. cheating because any chance that we have to, to prop <laughs> up more movies to get more yeah. people to to see them, I think, is is a good thing. And and since the list is flawed to begin with, like, why not put out multiple I, I lists? Think, I, think it's, I think it's fun. I love all kinds of lists. I don't think it's... I don't think it's uh, but it is cheating. Flawed. Let's just be clear about that. It is a little bit unusual that he did it this way, and it's it's sort of like it. I guess what I was saying is I was wrestling so hard within the bedroom and Gosford Park and Lord of the Rings uh-huh. as like what's the best movie, and he didn't even have to make that choice. Yeah, he just. So what was his number one? His number one in indie movies was Memento. Ah, okay, nice. Second, Mulholland Drive. I did not watch Waking Life. It's a Richard Linklater animated movie. Mm-hmm. Have I've you seen ever seen that, that one? Yeah, I have it, not seen it's, it. It's kind of like a a conver- It's a it's a conversation on philosophy for an hour yeah. and a half, and it's got animation. Uh, it's called uh, rotoscoping, I think. Maybe mm-hmm. I don't remember the exact word, but it's kind of animation over live action acting. Mm-hmm. Richard Linklater of Before Sunrise, Dazed and Confused, and, yeah. right? Yeah, and and uh, Boyhood. Boyhood. I was thinking of this boy's life. Mm-hmm. Boyhood. Before sunset, before midnight, (laughs) the (laughs) bad news bears. He then school of rock. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) He then put Ghost World as number four, which was also nominated for best original or best adapted screenplay, Mm -hmm. which is the reason I watched it. And some Um, say the start of the comic book boom that we're in now. Because Ghost it is World? based off of a graphic novel. Yeah. So I'm thinking that think it probably so. started the boom. <laughs> it makes sense. <laughs> I don't think so. But Steve Buscemi is great. And Road to Perdition in, in 2002 he, also. Steve Buscemi doesn't get the leading actor role very often. He doesn't. He's always the weird guy. Like he's always described in Fargo. Until Although, uh, Boardwalk Empire and HBO. Mm-hmm. He had like mm-hmm. like seven seasons of that. I also did not see Hedwig and the Angry Inch. It's a great one. Or Sexy Beast. I saw Sexy Beast years ago. I didn't rewatch yeah. it for this. Ben and Kingsley, I think, was nominated. Yeah, yeah. So you have to go all the way down to seven for In the Bedroom. Wow. The Man Who Wasn't There, which I thought was brilliant, was number eight, Coen Brothers. Gosford Park, number nine, and Amelie, number 10. So I thought that was an interesting list. So his, his Hollywood 10, prepping our own lists. Mm-hmm. This is just the opening act, Peter Travers. <laughs> He goes Fellowship number one, uh-huh. Ali number two, which I think is way overblown. I did not really love Will Smith in that movie. No, I, really? The, the I like th- him a lot. In that. The thing is, his his portrayal, this is a hard time I have with a lot of um, true life. We're not just acting, but we're trying to imitate somebody else. Mm-hmm. And the best impersonation you can do of them might feel like, oh, wow, I, I forgot I was watching Will Smith. I actually thought it was Muhammad Ali in this movie. To me, that's not enough to say that's a great acting performance. It's more just an impersonation. Um, but I, so anyway, I, I felt like it was a little bit more of an impersonation than great acting. But obviously I am in the minority there. Royal Tenenbaums, which I did not rewatch for this because I ran out of time with the uh, library. Mm-hmm. A lot of people love <laughs> I know. the Royal Tenenbaums. I watched it once. Wes Anderson. I did see it once years ago, but I did not rewatch it. It's one of those where I kind of feel like I wish I could get it. Yeah. But I rewatched it again. I didn't really like it the first time I watched it. This time I went in, I tried to really, really keep mm-hmm. an open mind because people love this movie. I and know. Love this director. It's a major, it's a it's a major work of Wes Anderson. I just came to the conclusion that I, I'm I, I'm just gonna accept 
that I don't get that movie. You don't get the real and 10 bombs. That's, that's okay. I do. My experience watching watching it was that I loved the visual feast. Yeah, it looks. And I amazing. was like, "This is gonna, this is gonna work. This is gonna come together and also hit me emotionally." And it just, it never did. Yeah, I felt the same. And way. And so, anyway, it's, it's a shame to put all that towards something that I think didn't quite hit there. Shrek, I did not rewatch. <laughs> I didn't either. It's number four. <laughs> That's high. And Peter Travers. It was also. Um, it also get, did get nominated, I think, for... Best Animation, probably? I think it was Animated more feature? than that, too. Special effects? Screenplay? What? Is that possible? I don't think so. All right. Be, while we're sitting here, I'm going to have to look this up and look at that. But also on the list, number five, is Vanilla Sky. Hmm. I thought that was extremely high for Vanilla Sky. Yeah. yeah. Although, I did rewatch it, and I found a lot that I liked in the movie. What is your take on Vanilla Sky? I think that I, I like got, Tom Cruise in it a lot. Mm-hmm. I like Tom Cruise in pretty much everything. I do too. Um, He's and, a lot better after the first 10 to 12 minutes get out of the way because that's sort of, I felt like that was almost like a caricature of is. a Tom Cruise character. Grinning ear to yeah. ear, just cocky. He's super and, buddy buddy with his pals. And yeah, like he's yeah. So popular. And once charismatic. that goes away, I, yeah. I like once he gets me too the deformation. Yeah, <laughs> once a, he, a deformed Tom deformity. Cruise, so much more charming than just the real Tom Cruise. You know, there are some cool visuals. It's it's got a cool like almost horror vibe yeah. to it. Right, but I think when the reveal comes in the end, I, I didn't. None of that worked it's for me. There's a there. lot of exposition, a lot of explaining what's happening and why. Yeah. Um, and the original does that also. Open your eyes. The Spanish version. I have not seen the original, but I did see that it was a it was a remake of it. I think that's fascinating that this is Cameron Crowe's follow up mm. to Almost Famous. Yeah, it's one of the most fun things about going chronologically like this is seeing like okay, Ali, I'm I'm interested in that because it's the next movie after The Insider. That's kind of makes it even more interesting and like you're kind of figuring that out. So Vanilla Sky, Cameron Crowe, Moulin Rouge was number six. Black Hawk Down was number seven. What did you think of Black Hawk Down? I didn't get didn't get around to it, unfortunately. Have you seen it at all, ever? No. Okay. I thought Ridley Scott, um, first of all, tra- uh, Peter Travers says, the script's speechifying can't stop Ridley Scott. I mean, it does. Hmm. There's, there's a lot of like war hero kind of rhetoric that feels oh, pretty really? false and scripted. But the action sequences are incredible Hmm. incredible i thought it was just gonna be i i I get weary of like intense battle scenes they kind of start to feel like it's all the same but the camera shots the visuals of it it was it was uh it it was something to see so you call it a post gladiator special effects movie i mean again it's more interesting because it was right after gladiator i'm Mm -hmm. like yeah interesting you go with a a gladiator you know ancient epic to a modern day like it's interesting to think of those two side by side with each other uh a beautiful in the mind was number eight for peter travers and then ai number nine which i did not do research on and you mentioned stanley kubrick had started it he, he brings that up too but he calls it a sci-fi shambles that true film fans will heatedly discuss for ages <laughs> There's a lot to like in AI. Yeah, but it's, I, it's flawed. I think it, it was but. it was too much of a mishmash for me to really get into. And I really have a hard time with kid actors. I don't really think Haley Joel Osment 
you know, is... He's not Sixth Sense good. He's not as good as in Sixth Sense. Even in Sixth Sense, I didn't... He's not as good as an adult who's perfected his craft, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And then number 10 was Ocean's Eleven, which I did not go back to because I knew it wasn't really in my top five, although... It was definitely um, a it's fun. Cool. It's a it's fun cool watch. And fun. It's cool. It, it, it's it's what you want. Yeah. For a summer blockbuster, I think yeah. you know you're not going to watch that movie and walk away like, ugh. How yeah. could you say? Yeah, ugh yeah. After it's going to be a fun experience, yeah. but you're not also going to walk away thinking, I need to rethink my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I need to get into this line of work. I have a or, lot of contemplation. Or maybe to do. you maybe you do rethink your life and you're thinking, I got to stop robbing casinos. Yeah. Or I got to start wearing tailored suits. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta find some better looking friends. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of good looking friends in that movie. <laughs> yeah. All right. So personal top fives. This right. is this is what we've all been waiting for. This is this is the big one. And yeah. um I guess I'll I'll tell you first mm-hmm. which ones I kicked. Okay. So Gosford Park was the easy one for me to kick. Mm-hmm. I just did not connect to that movie for mm-hmm. you know whatever reason. Your fault. It must be my fault. Your fault. <laughs> a beautiful mind. <laughs> yeah. Also pretty easy for me to kick. Right. I I don't dislike it. Um, I just don't think that it's special. Yeah. And so I you know it's kind of one of those ordinary is not going to make the top five. Mm-hmm. Initially, I was going to keep Moulin Rouge. You dirty but, dog. But, I figured you probably would because, you know, it is it is what it is. But Yeah, the more that I watched, it's like it does what it does very well. Yeah. But whenever I am pitting two movies against each other and I have to and I have one spot for yeah. them, I ask myself like a series of questions to try to test it. Like what? I'm very curious about this because so, I had to go through this too with these five. I'll ask this year anyway. I asked the question, which of these two movies has made your life better? I asked mm. I asked myself that that uh, several times because really? some of them I have kind of a nostalgic bond to. Yeah. And I can't separate myself from that. So I'm not going to pretend that I can and then, you know, just say, "Oh, I, you know, well, I saw this when I was Well, it's a good 15 thing. Or it's whatever. a good thing your wife is not going to listen to this episode because <laughs> if she knew that you were kicking Moulin Rouge, your wedding song. Yeah. Well, I mean, it wasn't she our official be, wedding song. It was just played at the wedding, you know, when people were Getting cannolis and stuff. Well, now you're backtracking on Moulin Rouge because you're kicking it. <laughs> well, I know I, what's I going on I asked myself here. that, but then I also yep. like to think of it as in, so if I'm picking one over the other, the one that I don't kick will no longer exist. It, it's it's not in the world. <laughs> it, it just evaporates. Mm-hmm. And How wh- sad are you? Yeah. Which one am I more okay with disappearing forever <laughs> off the face of the earth? I'm glad you don't have these powers. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, it, it increases the stakes, you yeah. know, so it makes you really think about this as an important endeavor, which it is. Mm-hmm. So my number five, I talked about nostalgia. Mm-hmm. I'm going Donnie Darko with, oh, with number five. We good. talked about this. I thought you were not going to keep it on there, but yeah, I, I cannot, I cannot fault you for Donnie Darko at number five. I've had a journey. It's a fun w- movie. I've had a journey and with very thought provoking. So I went in thinking, this is a lock. I almost don't even need to watch it. It's going to make my top five. <laughs> Good and then thing I, you rewatched it. I rewatched it thinking, this is fighting for a spot right now. I don't, <laughs> I don't really know. Um, <laughs> but I just came to the conclusion that it's not perfect, but tonally and stylistically, mm-hmm. I think it's close. I think it's as close as you can get to perfect mm-hmm. in, in those arenas. And it's just sort of been a touchstone for me, like since my teen years and it's, you know, well, it's, it's a built-in part of my childhood. In Jake a way. Gyllenhaal said in an interview afterward that the movie did well in Europe in part because he thought Europeans were more likely to go along with the movie, even though it's not perfect. 
I thought that mm. was kind of an interesting sentiment because that does, yeah. when, when I start looking at these, I'm starting to pick them apart like, yeah, but what about this? This wasn't perfect. Yeah. This is a flaw of that movie. So therefore I feel justified in kicking it. But you got to look at more than just those flaws because yeah. Lord of the Rings has flaws. I don't love yeah. everything about that movie, but I sure. still put it as number one in my Oscar list, I won't tell you. <laughs> and I think, too, it's almost worth About it sometimes to think of it as music, especially that movie, because I think that there is such a musicality to it. But, like, you don't go through a song and try to break it down note by note and say, well, maybe they should have moved this one note over here. It's more about the feeling that you're getting when you're listening to that song. And I think it's because it's shorter. But I don't think that we should throw that that sort of method of evaluating an experience out just because a movie is an hour and a half and a song is you know, three and a half minutes. Or if you listen to prog rock, Brian, sometimes 20, sometimes 25 minutes. That's why we don't listen to that much prog rock in life though. You know, you know what? During Donnie Darko time, (laughs) I was listening to a ton of 20 minute songs. So maybe that they go together here. Uh, But yeah, I think that this is kind of one of the handful of movies that I can look back on and say that it was a contributor in in getting me into cinema. You should have just moved it up higher. Maybe, maybe. So number four, Yep. I debated almost put this one at number five, but I'm going Christopher Nolan's Memento here. Very good. This is another that I saw as a teenager, and I don't think I really understood (laughs) at the time what Nolan was saying about subjective truth and storytelling and identity. I just thought that it was cool. The structure is very unique, how how it kind of goes in reverse, you know, starting with the end, Mm -hmm. ending with the beginning. And that is a gimmick, but it's not just a gimmick. It's not there just to blow your mind because it's different than the norm. Mm-hmm. I think the way that it's edited sort of forces us to be in the character, in the in the point of view of the main character, uh, Leonard Shelby. Um, the way that he's always putting pieces of information together, trying to puzzle everything together. So are we at the beginning of every mm-hmm. scene because we don't know what happened just before it. And I think that that's kind of a cool way to tell a story and a cool way to trick us into following along i just love how daring it is i mean christopher nolan he goes on to make a whole lot of other very daring movies but mm-hmm. to 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 do it in like a 130 229 327 328 uh-huh. it's such a cool uh idea and the the ending the surprise ending is the middle of the story yeah that's such a cool idea um I found it sometimes to get a little bit tedious how much time he spent replaying the in, scene that just ended. No, in he's in a hotel room uh-huh. talking on the phone to somebody that you don't know. Yeah. And there's a lot of kind of, I feel like it. it's a little bit clunkily exposing the, the plot. Mm-hmm. But I also think that you got to be kind of forgiving of that because you may have to bend it a little bit to make this really weird structure work. And I think it is a, I think it's a great achievement. I didn't love it personally as much to be on my top five. It's not in my top mm-hmm. five, but I definitely think that it's, it's a, uh, um, I wasn't surprised to see it as Peter Travers number one either, you know? Yeah. At least his indie is indie one. Number one. I just think it's great that we learn everything that we need to know about this character at the exact moment where it doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, the credits will roll and he's going to forget everything like resetting the narrative mm-hmm. that he's constructed, you know, right back to the beginning just to, you know, kind of give him meaning. So I, I brought a clip because I want to, I want to play um, a scene from this movie. So in it, Teddy played by Joe Pantoliano. I, I always get his name wrong. He's Joey good. Pants. He's I'm going to call good. him. I think you got to just go with that. Joey Pants is trying to convince Guy Pierce, uh, Leonard to stop searching for his wife's killer. But, 
Pierce doesn't know if Teddy is a friend or if he's just pretending to be, and neither do we. You don't have a clue, do you? You don't even know who you are. Yes, I do. I don't have amnesia. I remember everything right up until the incident. I am Leonard Shelby. I am from San Francisco. That's who you were. You do not know who you are. What you've become since the incident. You wander around playing detective. You don't even know how long ago it was. Let me put it this way. Were you wearing designer suits when you sold insurance? I didn't sell insurance. Right, I investigated. Right, you're an investigator. Well, maybe you should start investigating yourself. Thank you for the advice. But that's the thing. The truth in this movie doesn't matter. The story is what matters. And I, I, I just, I love that idea. And in the scene, in the whole movie, Joey Pants is so great. Love this guy. <laughs> he is. He's very good. He's such a great actor. Also, Moss, what's her name? Carrie. Uh, uh, Carrie, Carrie Ann Moss. Moss. Yeah. Going from, we just watched her in The Matrix in 99. Now we got her in Memento. She's also in our favorite, Chocolat. <laughs> oh, yeah, she is in Chocolat. <laughs> so you yeah. almost erased that movie from my memory because you didn't include it in your top five. That's how it works, Brian. But that's an interesting three in a row for Carrie Ann Moss. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's it's true. It's true. Chocolat feels like the a Matrix, weird one there. but Chocolat, Memento. She had a good run. I mean, Chocolat is well-loved by people outside of the studio. <laughs> number three. <laughs> my number three. As far as directorial debuts go, mm-hmm. this has to be one of the best. It's in the bedroom from Todd Field. Yeah, I mean, we talked about how this, how underseen this movie is, and um, I, I, I guess that's all I want to impress here. If you haven't seen it, I won't spoil it. I'm just going to say it's a family drama, it's a murder mystery, <laughs> it's a meditation on grief, and it's incredibly powerful. If you haven't seen it or listened to our previous podcast yeah. episode, but maybe they which didn't. Sort of te- teases it or spoils I, I it. I bet you a lot of people probably wouldn't. I think it pretty if, much spoils it. If you hadn't heard of that movie before, maybe you would skip that episode. Yeah. And I'm here to tell you, don't do that. Don't do it. Go, go back. back. Go back. Pause and watch this it. one right now and go listen to that one. <laughs> yeah. My number two. Number two. Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> so we did a Facebook Live video Should episode on this one. one. We talked right? about it for an hour. Everybody knows Lord of the Rings. I don't need to say much about it. All I will say is that, that it's the biggest swing on this list, I think. And Jackson totally lands. He, he totally connects. Totally mm-hmm. connects. And he redefines what a fantasy epic is. Biggest swing as a baseball metaphor. The, yeah, as a as a baseball metaphor. Yeah, like a playground a, metaphor. No, baseball, America's pastime, crack of the bat. <laughs> <laughs> the crowd goes wild. And I think that's what happened Peter here. Jackson hits a home run. He, he did. He yep. did. So my number one is Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. This is not only my number one of the year. This is one of my favorite movies of all time, maybe in my top five. Mm-hmm. I haven't made a definitive top 100 mm-hmm. of my lifetime. We talked about this a couple of years ago. Yeah, I tried to do it, but it was it was a real undertaking, and it kept You're gonna me up You're going to have to do it after uh, after we get to the end of like the 2025 season, whenever <laughs> whenever we catch up to real time. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it'll be easier once we look at this list again. Maybe, maybe it's still going to be hard <laughs> for me, but I just, I love so much about this movie, the may, the way it moves and, and looks and what it has to say about the power of art and our need and want to be manipulated through it. I think that Lynch has such an understanding of the way that we watch movies and what we expect. And that's what makes him so good at subverting those expectations like yeah. over and over and over again. You know, he'll tell us straight up in a scene, I'm about to trick you, get ready. And we're like, that's not going to 
have. And and that ends up being one <laughs> of the most powerful tricks. Yes. No I banda. Club Silencio. This yep. is all an illusion. And that ends up being maybe one of the most powerful moments of the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's right before he told us that it's not real and we still wanted to buy in that much. I think that that's a testament not only to how we watch movies and digest art, but also how good Lynch is. Mm-hmm. And it's the craziest and most abstract movie on the list. So to emotional punch, I think makes it even more yeah. impressive. And that's my top Very five. True. Mulholland Drive number one. Mulholland I, Drive. I knew that one. was going to be your number one. It's not much of a big surprise to me, but um, yeah. Again, I do not fault you for putting that as number one. It's a, it's, it's truly a masterpiece. I will now tell you a few that did not make my list. I had to kick a beautiful mind in the end. That's I, the right choice. I also had to go back on my original boot down on this. So I kept one and ended up kicking it. Yeah. And you kept one. No, I kicked, I, I was, I originally kept four and only kicked Moulin Rouge. I had to ultimately also kick another one to make room for another movie. Okay. So Beautiful Mind got kicked. Although I love, love, love Jennifer Connelly and Russell Crowe's moment when she returns after she, after she discovers that he's insane. You can go back and listen to the Beautiful Mind episode if you really care about yeah. that, what I just said. And it's that's still interesting to me because yeah. I feel like their relationship is the worst part of that movie. No, I don't think it works I at all. And for you, it's, it's, the, uh, but it's, it's the glue. It's how subjective movies are and all art can be. Yep. Um, another three other movies did not make the cut, which should have somehow if I had the luxury of Peter Travers making up new ways to create these lists. One of them is Monsters, Inc. (laughs) I love Monsters, Inc. I think it's the best Pixar movie. I think that it is incredibly inventive. The warehouse doors, you know, the, 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 uh, the power plant of kids screams. Yeah. It's totally genius. It's great. And not only that, but Billy Crystal's character is my favorite Pixar character. It's him and Mater are just so great. They they make me laugh out loud and that's hard to do in in a in a movie, I think. Um but it didn't make my my cut. Training Day did not make the cut and I watched it a long time ago when it, you know, 10-15 years ago. Liked it, thought it was like really a little kind of too dark and depressing that I didn't like love it. I rewatched it because I was curious and it did it did get a, a best I mean Denzel, Denzel Washington won. won best actor for this. Yeah. And I Loved it more this time than I did the first time. Interesting how that works. Um, but Denzel Washington's way of like manipulating Ethan Hawke is masterful. Yeah. The way that screenplay works out with them is so great. And he's trying to tell him you have to dismiss not only your expectations of what it means to be a cop, every idea of what it means to be right or wrong, you have to get rid of to be on this training day with me. And he he gets changed and, and you, you believe every step that Ethan Hawke takes as he's being twisted into becoming the next Denzel Washington, you believe every time he's like, they're cops and he's doing drugs in the car. And you're like, I think he, I believe he did that, that he would have done it. <laughs> and the movie, the movie would not work if Denzel was yeah, not he's in, a, in that he's role. He's brilliant in the role. Because it's his charisma is so much of the reason why Ethan Hawke, does what he does and, yeah. and goes along with him because you feel like this guy has never been wrong about anything. I, I mean, Denzel knows he must know exactly what King he's talking Kong's about. got nothing on me. <laughs> yeah. That was improvised, by the way. It's a great line. Yeah. 
The other movie that did not make the cut that I was just so heartbroken to do is The Man Who Wasn't There. I loved this movie. The Coen brothers totally knock it out of the park to use a, you know, to use a, a sports terminology. Metaphor, yeah. Uh Roger Deakins in black and white. I love black and white. Yeah. Roger Deakins is a genius. Um my favorite moment is early on in this movie, Billy Bob Thornton suspects that his wife is having an affair with her boss. So he commits, and then he commits to investing $10,000 with this, you know, salesman. And the next shot is a typewriter typing up a black mail note for Billy Bob Thornton to his boss's wife. And like all these things come together in a, it's like a little confusing at first, but it's, there's no explanation. It's just, you see the typing and you know what all is going on in his head. I think it's such a, a great, like understated, it's, it's the Coen brothers love affair with noir and this black and white. And it takes some really strange twists and turns throughout. I wish that I could, this was a near miss, but training day is a near miss, whatever. They're, they're great movies. You can't really say that it's necessarily worse. So going to my top five. And I just want you to yeah. know, don't think that I didn't realize that you just pulled a me you're cheating, throwing in extra oh, movies so you can we? talk about them. Yeah, yeah. And then just acting like it's just a part of our conversation. No, no, no. You wanted to talk about those movies, but they're not in your top five. I did. You are you are correct. Did it work? Did my trick work? I mean, like I said before, any opportunity to talk about more movies. Like, I didn't mention Zoolander and Joe Dirt, but we, I should have. We also talked about 20 movies that Peter Travers came up with, so whatever. Yeah. Okay, my number five is Mulholland Drive. And I know that you'd be upset with me for making this as low as five. Yeah, yeah. So here's the thing. What is the most important quality a movie must have to be the best movie of the year? To me, the biggest thing I'm looking for, I asked you what you're looking for. To me, it's what makes the most intense, intense emotional response mm -hmm. about the character's, uh, you know, state. And I felt like the great film critic said it best. You may remember this line, this, this film critic. See if you can identify the film critic. It's like Samuel Beckett, you know? I admire the technique, but he doesn't, he doesn't hit me on a gut level. Is that a Woody Allen? It is from Woody. It's from Annie <laughs> Hall where he's standing in line and the guy behind him, like, I'd like to hit this guy on the gut level. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I think about that. He doesn't hit me on a gut level. What, what, is an art want, what do I want art to do? I want it to hit me on a gut level. Yep. I think, though, that Mulholland Drive is a type of movie, I know it is, that I've only watched it one time. And it's the type of movie that you watch it again when you know what to expect, how crazy and weird it is, and that you never know what the blue box is. Mm -hmm. And then you watch it again, you're going to appreciate it more and more. So I fully would expect that this, would con that this could creep up my list if I watch it over the years. Number four, In the Bedroom. Number three, Gosford Park. Number two, Lord of the Rings. And my number one was Monster's Ball. Wow, Monsters, Monsters Ball, Ball was your number one. Monsters Ball was the first one I watched of 2001 in my series of 19 movies. And I kept kind of, I, at first of all, I was blown away by it. And I watched the VidAngel version, so disclaimer, because there's a very famous and extremely gratuitous sex scene well, gratuitous in the movie. In the eye of the beholder. In the right? eye of the beholder, <laughs> which I was not one of. Um, but, and it's, it. I would be... I'm interested to see exactly how that changes, if that would change my experience with the movie, but I watched it without that. Um, but the interplay of the characters is so intensely moving between not only Billy Bob Thornton and Halle Berry, who won Best Actress, but also between 
Billy Bob Thornton and his son played by Heath Ledger. It's just such a tragic, you know, relationship. Billy Bob Thornton and his father is, I don't want to give the whole movie away, but every relationship is just, it's, it's, it's a sort of unresolved emotionally, um, but just really intriguing and, um, Billy Bob Thornton and Halle Berry, you know, of above them all in that way, to me, it was like in the bedroom, but times four with all these different other characters. Hmm. That's how I, that's how I experienced it. And at the end I was like, this is kind of like a hopeful ending, but also kind of puzzling. Um, so Roger Ebert also, by the way, put it as his number one, which I was very surprised but he said students of screenwriting should study the way the film handles the crucial passages, crucial passages at the end when she, meaning Halle Berry's character, discovers some drawings and understands their meaning. Here's where a lesser movie would have supplied an obligatory confrontation. But Monster's Ball demonstrates that to explain all its mysteries, a movie must have to limit itself to mysteries that can be explained. As for myself, as Letitia, which is Halle Berry, rejoin Hank, Billy Bob Thornton, in the last shot of the movie. I was thinking about her as deeply and urgently as about any movie character I can remember, unquote. I thought that was pretty strong words from Roger Ebert. Hmm. Um, but the only th- the one thing I didn't like, like about it too much is that it has a similarly strange reference, like in the bedroom. It's a very similar kind of approach. Like Monster's Ball is like uh, sort of like a, a term that people use for like, the right before you get killed on death row. Um, cause he's a worker on death row. They call it the monster's ball. just like in the bedroom is some weird, you know, strange metaphor Lobster thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, those are my top five. Yeah. Well, you make me want to rewatch monster's ball. I yeah. I've seen it before. I'm, I'm going to definitely rewatch Mulholland drive sometime in the, in the, I don't know about the near future because we got 2002 to worry about. Yeah, we have 2002 coming in hot. But, but I'm I, excited seen to this, see it again. I've seen Monsters Ball before, and it was one that was on my list. I was running out of time. Yeah. I thought same thing with the gut level. This one didn't hit me on a gut level the first time I saw Interesting, it. Interesting, yeah. But Which, it was years and years ago. I mean, yeah. I, I, I probably do owe it to myself to check it out again. Maybe so. I uh, I I have more to my list as well. So let's go on to other Oscar awards that maybe deserve to be kicked off their pedestals. Do you have any that you would like to share? Yes, I do. Um, first one, I want to kick Nicole Kidman from the best Oscar, I mean, best actress category okay. and replace so her. So did she win? Um, she was just nominated? I actually, no, no, I, Halle Berry won. Halle Berry won, yeah. yeah so she did not win. Um, but I don't think that she belongs there at all for Moulin Rouge. She's she's fine in it. But Naomi Watts is yeah. not nominated, which is Yeah, that's is crazy. Naomi insane. Watts is, it's, it's a performance for the ages. From Mulholland, Mulholland Drive. Drive, yeah. She, she's great and... Um, without watching Mul- uh, Monsters Ball again. Yeah. I can't say that she definitely should have won because I would have to compare it to Halle Berry, but I feel like she should have. I think that just some of some of Halle Berry's best moments are kind of the sort of over-the-top emotionally mm-hmm. that feel like a little Oscar baity, whereas Naomi Watts plays in a huge range. Yeah, the spectrum is and I think that so I think wide. that as far as like the pure art of acting, I'm not an actor, so you know, you don't have to believe me, but I can I would I would think that Naomi Watts was more impressive even than Halle Berry. Yeah. Although Halle Berry was great. She, she's great. So my other ones are all best director. I think that Boz Lerman should have been nominated for yeah. best director, uh possibly over best picture. 
Uh, Todd Field should have been nominated for Best Director also. My heart says that David Lynch should have won Best Director, mm -hmm. but I think I'm going to give it to Peter Jackson. So did I. I, was, I. I would say Peter Jackson should have gotten Best Director in this. Yeah, it's, it's just the scope. You know, It's mm -hmm. so big. It's something that nobody's ever done before. And between him and Lynch, I think that they clearly made the two most important mm -hmm. to me movies of the year. And so they, sh they should be recognized with something each. Interesting, though, that Lynch shared the Best Directing with the Coen brothers or just one of the Coen brothers for um, in one of, I don't know if it was Cannes or Golden Globe or something hmm. for this year for a man who wasn't there. Um, it made me think, what is David Lynch's greatest accomplishment with Mulholland Drive? If it's not directing, I mean, is it the writing? Cause the script is, I don't know. It's such a strange movie to think about. Yeah. Is it the concept that is the biggest accomplishment? Um, is it the, the camera? play I, I don't know when you put it all together it's kind of like in it's it's like there's there's hollywood top 10 there's the indie top 10 and then there's mahalan drive as almost like <laughs> a new kind of a new kind of category it's such a unique experience and you know for this to be 2001 there's been so many oscar movies mm -hmm. and for mahalan drive to stand out as so different from the pack I think is a strength. You know, it's not it's not just so different because it's weird. I think it's different and it works, and yeah. that's the important thing. Yep, I'm looking forward to rewatching it. Um, my golden take is very short, so I'm going to go first, and then you can you can go with your pages and pages of notes. Yeah, oh, I've got so such so many notes. Um, my question is, why does a movie change spots in your top five? I've been thinking a lot about this, um, and I wanted to bring up Roger Ebert. Um, I looked at his top 10 movies of all time. I've looked back at that list a few times to kind of see what, what is, uh, how he came up with them. And he replaced a movie. He did it every 10 years, updated his list. In 2012, which is the last time he updated it, he replaced a Hitchcock movie with another Hitchcock movie. <laughs> okay. He kicked off Notorious and added Ooh. Vertigo. Yeah, okay. Um, both classics i have yeah. notorious still in shrink wrap in my drawer that i oh you gotta to you gotta watch notorious i have once but it's a long time ago love it like i was a teenager at the time and why did he change it because he said he analyzed it shot by shot he used and, to do those kind of yeah. screenings ebert interrupt us yeah and he came to the conclusion that vertigo was superior based on the shot by shot appreciation it just kind of made me think like sometimes you have to to fully appreciate a movie you have to experience it post plot Yep. And think about oh, it yeah. on what else is it doing besides plot? Because our gut reaction is usually based on the plot and the character. Okay, now now what else? And that's where the true appreciation kind of blossoms. So, yeah, I felt I got? feel like that a lot when I see Tarantino movies because I feel like I go into them with all this baggage and expectations, and because you know he's another one. I mentioned Dying Darko before, like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Those were two that made me love movies at yeah. a certain point. So like. I've seen his movies a bunch of times and I have a lot of ideas about them and I used to have posters and stuff. Mm -hmm. So then when I see a new one... Even posters. I used to have posters. Oh my goodness. So when I see a new one, I kind of go in probably with subconsciously with unrealistic expectations, I think. And I've realized that I usually like the new ones 10 times better after I see them a second time mm -hmm. because then I'm able to just experience the movie for what it is instead of what maybe I imagined it to be before I walked into the theater. Mm -hmm. So I think that you're definitely right about that. You need to separate yourself from story a little bit to get mm -hmm. some distance. But my golden take was I thought it was interesting that Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone both came out 
this year. So yeah. we have these the two... The first Sorcerer's... Yeah, it was nominated for something in there. I did, it yeah. didn't make my list I mean, watch, and honestly, but... that movie, I'm not the, I'm not the biggest yeah. fan. It's a very... It's a kid's movie. They're very and kid, then, yeah. And then it changes in the third one with Azkaban. But mm-hmm. it's two massive fantasy franchises kick off in the same year. But also, just as importantly, The Fast <laughs> and the Furious. Yeah. And we're in the middle of... Star Wars still, aren't we? Yeah, uh, Phantom Menace was 99. Okay. So it's all kind of... But I guess the difference between those three is Phantom Menace is based off of something that already existed, yeah, right. and, the, and these are new. So The Fast and the Furious launches this 13-movie series. You've seen every one of them, I see. <laughs> I have not. <laughs> but you know what? I, I do want to see... The, I want to see the later ones. We're new... Uh, we got to have a new... A bo- mini-series bo- Bonus episodes Fast of all Fast and Furious. Yeah. So Harry Potter has 10... <laughs> movies including two wow. fantastic beasts wow lord of the rings has six including the hobbit plus the amazon show that we talked about mm-hmm. in an earlier episode that's coming so here we have these three gigantically successful series and they all do the shared universe thing mm-hmm. starting in 2001 it got me thinking we sort of always blame marvel for giving us a world where superhero blockbusters are the only movies that make real money we blame marvel or we give them credit okay. depending on how how you look at it but i think we're wrong about that and I think it was Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter that actually did it. They're, all, they're also superhero movies in their own right, if you think about it. Magical powers left and right, supernatural stuff going on. Mm-hmm. They came out seven years before Iron Man kicked off the MCU. And get this, worldwide box office gross. Iron Man made $585 million. Lord of the Rings, $881 million seven years earlier. Harry Potter, $947 million. Mm. So for context, Monsters, Inc. was the second, uh, or Monsters, Inc., Shrek, and Ocean's Eleven were the third, fourth, and fifth, mm-hmm. and they made 450 to 200 and, uh, wow. 528. So basically three, Clearly the best movie of the year. <laughs> I guess so. Sorcerer's Stone. 300 to 500 million less than Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. And, you know, obviously... Fast and the Furious is a very different kind of franchise, but that's all about spectacle too, especially in the later ones. So I just think it's fascinating that these things kick off in 2001. You know, we had X-Men in 2000, Marvel's like gearing up, but Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, I think clearly hit on something that audiences wanted in 2001. And over time, I think that that want, that like audience craving kind of just took the shape of, of comic book heroes rather than marvel sort of forcing it into existence so the dark knight came out the same year that iron man did and that made over one billion billion dollars but still that's seven years after harry potter made basically the same exact Mm -hmm. amount in 2001 and today it's not rare at all for these these movies to rake in that kind of money like avengers endgame made 2.8 billion dollars in 2019 crazy so i think marvel mastered the template but i think it's wrong to say that they created it and uh, I think studios just saw a demand in 2001 because of those two fantasy flicks. And, you know, over over the years, they just kind of figured out how to fill that demand. And Marvel does it the best. I would argue that you got to go back still to Star Wars as the You're going back to the, the 70s. Franchise. Well, that's why, that's why the episodes one, two, three were kind of like re, revisiting the Star Wars world. Yeah, but... <laughs> But I think no matter what those movies were, no matter how George Lucas envisioned them, shot them, use CGI or not, they still would have made a crazy amount of money. Mm-hmm. I think the difference is those Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter were using the, that cutting edge CGI and they were doing that huge world thing. 
And then later on, you know, they turn into this shared universe, which is what Marvel and DC are all about. You know, these crossover films. Maybe for Avengers. some other episodes, we should do talk about the, the Harry Potter books. Nope. Okay. Not interested. Trivia time. <laughs> I have five bits of trivia. Monsters Ball was, it floated around the studio for six years before it was picked up. Originally, it was going to be Sean Penn directing Robert De Niro as, okay. as Billy Bob Thornton's character. Number two trivia, Monsters Ball grossed $44.9 million. Not anywhere, you know. Small. It's, yeah, but the budget was only $4 million. So it was kind of like an in-the-bedroom level, yeah. you know, scale, which, you know, 10 times the, uh, yeah. the gross. In number three, in 2017, there's a book called The Coen Brothers written by Ian Nathan, and he talks about how Billy Bob Thornton got involved in The Man Who Wasn't There, which I loved this year. And he, <laughs> the, uh, Joel Cohen said, it's about a barber who wants to be in the dry cleaning business. I mean, wouldn't that make you want to be in the movie? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the plot synopsis right <laughs> but there. Billy Bob Thornton, he, he, the reputation of the Coen brothers was like so hot. Yeah. He's like, I'll take it. Yeah. Any movie that they're, <laughs> that they're making, you want to be in. Dry cleaning and barber? Oh, I got to be in this movie. <laughs> Number four. Toby Maguire was supposed to be Ethan Hawke's character in Training Day. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I can see it. It got that close. It got so close that he followed an undercover narcotics officer in LA for two months. Wow. And gained weight for the role. And then he was dropped when Ethan Hawke, who was the first choice, finally became available. So if you were Toby Maguire, how would you feel after falling around a narcotics officer for two months and putting on that weight. Have I already met with Sam Raimi to do Spider-Man <laughs> in 2002? <laughs> that's, that's how I feel. <laughs> Number five, T. Rogers, a gang leader, part of the Bloods in LA. I'm very familiar. <laughs> he was on set for the whole training day Wow, really? show because he was the one who allowed the gang members to be cast in exchange for using their neighborhood for hmm. the location. So they were real totally gang legit. members oh, in, yeah. in, in the movie. Totally. That's funny because a lot of the ones <laughs> that I'm remembering are all actors, actors I've seen yeah, right. in other things. I Not mean, Terry Crews is in it. There's probably a few who maybe were in the background that were yeah. actual gang Extras. members. Yeah, actual bloods. Okay. In the next episode, we begin 2002 by reevaluating... The Two Towers, the second installment of Peter Jackson's immortal, legendary, perfect trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> You're just baiting me with perfect. I am. I mean, it's a, it's a lot. It's, it's, they're three hours over three hours a piece. We're looking at like 10 hours of I can't wait. Perfect six is a bit much. I can't wait for six more hours of Gollum. <laughs> we want to hear from you. Do you agree or disagree with our takes for uh, best movies of 2001? Let us know and we'll read your answers on the show. You can find us at bestpicturethis.com or on Facebook and Twitter at bestpicturethis. Don't forget patreon.com slash bestpicturethis to throw some cold hard cash at Mike. <laughs> yeah. And thanks to WNZF and Mark Lilland for producing. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your pods. Until next time, remember, the best movie of 2001 was Monster's Ball. Mulholland <laughs> Drive. Drive.